I think this is the last time we're going to have this chart up here for this series. Um, we're finishing up the epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John and Jude, and then we're going to start Revelation, which of course is a very unique book. Um, we did 1 John through Jude very recently in the Wednesday night class, so I'm going to cover those fairly lightly. It's been longer since we've done Revelation, so that'll give us more time uh, to just spend a little more detail on that. Um, so here's our outline of 1 John. Um, and I'm impressed that anyone was able to outline the book because John, um, his book is more like an onion rather than a carefully organized outline. There's just layers you're always peeling away. Um, and he'll have, um, he'll bring something up and then he'll go on to something else and then he'll come back to it again. And just, and you kind of get, if you see something come up three or four times, you figure, oh, that's probably what this book's about. <laughs> So, but we'll we'll go we'll follow through the outline. Uh, what is the word, this says the reality of the incarnation? What does the word incarnation mean? Well, not re. That's reincarnation. No, okay. incarnation. Incarnation. In the flesh. Yeah, in the flesh. The incarnation was when Jesus was born. Jesus became flesh because he has always been. So he just became flesh. So that's what we call the incarnation, the reality of it. And so um, John begins his book by saying, what was from the beginning? You know, he's always been. But then he talks about, we've heard, we've seen, we've touched. And in verse uh, 2 he says, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, was manifested to us. Jesus, as the Word, John calls Him the Word in John chapter 1, He is eternal. But I suspect He means more by when He mentions the eternal life than just that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is eternal. I think He also means that it's through Him that we also have eternal life. And that's a major theme in in, uh, in this letter here. So the next section, starting in chapter one, verse five, uh, fellowship with the Father and the Son. Um, in verse six, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet do what? Yeah, you're close. Yeah, walk in darkness. Yeah, which of course is the same as sinning. We lie and do not practice the truth. So. John wants us to understand the parameters within which we have fellowship with the Father. There were people in the church at the time John was writing who had come up with theories which allowed them to say that they were having fellowship with God when they weren't doing a single thing in His service. Um, he, he, the, the doctrine later became known as Gnosticism, starting with G-N, the Gnosticism. It's, a, it's based on the Greek word for knowledge. And, and these people felt like they had this extra knowledge that told them that they could have fellowship with God without worrying about you know, what they did in their bodies. 
they, they separated the they separated the body in that they had the spirit and the flesh, and they said that the flesh is always sinful. That's just the way it is. You just might as well accept that. But it's the spirit that counts. So, you know that you know what that means for people that don't want to <laughs> do do the hard work of subjecting their flesh to what God says. This book is really addressing that problem. In chapter 2 and verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. Yes. So, um, And then down in verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what is not in him? The love of the Father. Yeah. All right. Then we have divine sonship. Now, this is not talking about the fact that Jesus is the Son, but it's the fact that we are sons. Um, if um, see if God has adopted us as children. So we'll start. It starts in chapter two, verse 20, 29. and I'll, I'll read chapter three, verse one. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we will be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Now, this is touching on a point that John doesn't deal with a lot, but uh, the fact that if we if we really are in fellowship with God, the world is going to hate us. Jesus, of course, told His disciples that the night in which He was betrayed. Um, and very often, the reason why people will refuse to subject their bodies to uh, the, the rules that God has made is because they don't want the, the pressure from the world that that's going to involve. And so, John wants us to view it in a different manner. The fact that the world hates us is not indication that we're doing something wrong. It's an indication that we are separate from the world just as God is separate from the world. Verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, John talks quite a bit about loving, loving his brother. Um, it's kind of the one, the one practical command that he uses as an illustration to kind of cover all the commands. Um, Jesus, you remember, said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? To love God. And the second like to it is yeah, love your neighbor as yourself, which John uh, phrases as loving your brother. And then we have a section called Ethics and Jesus Christ. Um, starts in chapter 4, verse 7, which I'll read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Um, and then I want to jump down to verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? A liar. Yeah. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. For, from the very beginning in Genesis, the, the, the whole reason that, that murder was forbidden is that human beings are made in the image of God. So if you murder a human being, you're, you're murdering the image of God. So it's a sin against God. And 
Hatred, of course, is the attitude that leads up to murder. So the one who hates his brother uh, and says he loves God, it doesn't work. It's impossible. Then the final section, uh, our our author has called Great Christian Certainties. Chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's one of the certainties. And he goes through some others. And I wanted to jump down right down to the last verse, which is an odd one. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. How many times has John mentioned idols in the book? <laughs> That's the only time. <laughs> yeah. And yet, I think it's been at the back of his mind the whole time. Because if we worship God, what's going to draw us away from God? Idols. And so that's why he says guard ourselves from idols. Alright, that's First John. Second John, I'm not going to go through each of these as just one chapter. Um, this may be the shortest book in the Bible. I haven't checked, but it's, it's certainly in contention for it. Um, very short letter to a lady. He says the elders of the chosen lady and her children, which um, some suggest is a church. And I, I, I'm sure that controversy will never be solved. But the the challenge that she was dealing with was a matter of having fellowship and encouraging people who are actually false teachers. And so in verse 10, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So 2 John is a, a letter warning against fellowship with those you shouldn't have fellowship with. Now interesting enough, 3 John is the flip side of that. 3 John talks about people who refuse to have fellowship with those that they should. Um, now this is written to a man named Gaius. That, that John thinks a lot of. And in, um, in verse 9, he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. And so he refused to have fellowship with the people that John was sending. In verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. That again sounds a lot like First John. But in this particular context, he's obviously referring to these people that refuse to have fellowship with faithful preachers. Alright, now we come to the book of Jude. Jude, he says, is a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. James, I assume, is the one who wrote the book of James. And we know from the Gospels that two of Jesus' brothers were named James and Jude. And... So this fits because we saw that James was the brother of, of, of Jesus. Though neither one claims that. That's, that, that's which I... It, it's, not easy, it's not difficult to guess why they would not claim that relationship. Their, their relationship is a bond servant of Jesus. As Jude says. Um, this, this, again, a very short letter, a little longer than you know, second and third John, but just one chapter. Uh, he, Jude explains in verse 4 what, why he needed to write this letter. 
in verse 3, he says he was already starting to write them about something, I think, something else. But in verse 4, he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into what? Licentiousness. What is licentiousness? It's license, yes. License to do what? Yeah, do whatever you want to do. That's what it is. Oh boy, we're we're Christ has made you free, <laughs> and they turn that into not freedom to get to know God better, but freedom to do just whatever the flesh wants, licentiousness. And they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so this this chapter is very similar to a chapter not too many books ago that predicted these people would come. The chapter begins, for there were false prophets among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. Where is that found? Linda? Yeah, 2 Peter chapter 2. And the two are very similar except that Peter is saying they're going to come and Jude is saying they have already got here. And so he pronounces a lot of the same... Uh, woes on these people that we found in Second Peter chapter two. Okay. Um, now we come to the book of Revelation, which we'll be on next week as well, and then we'll be done. Um, as everyone knows, this book is very different from anything else in the New Testament. But it has a lot of similarities to some books in the Old Testament. Can anyone name me some books that it sounds a lot like? Book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and there is one more. Zechariah. Yeah. Those are the three that, that John, the writer of Revelation, refers to the most in his book. Now, with Revelation, we have a very unusual um, method of referring to the Old Testament. Not a single time in the entire book does John ever say something like, as it is written in Isaiah, or as the Scriptures say. Um, nothing like that. I mean, you, you, we, we, you know, we, we've been going through all the epistles and they're, they're constantly saying, you know, as, as it is written where, here or there. Not once does John do that. And yet, John quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer. Um, just reference after reference. And, but this has thrown people off. There, there are a lot of people who, who have gone through the whole book of Revelation and studied it all up and, and tried to figure out what it's talking about. And they've never once figured out that it's quoting the Old Testament for a reason. That he's trying to sh- he's trying to sh- when he when he refers to the Old Testament is not it's not just that he likes the language or he thinks oh that's a real cool expression no it's not that he's quoting the Old Testament to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies back in the Old Testament. We'll see one of those in, in the lesson this morning, and then there'll be more next week as we finish up the book. Um, 
I want to show another way of looking at this book. Um, we've talked before about chiasms. What's a chiasm? It's a mirror image, yes. Um, if you look at the center here and put a mirror right there, then the two halves are, are a reflection. So that the first point gets reflected as the very last point. And let's look at that. The prologue talks about the imminence of the faithful witnesses coming with covenant sanctions. Now, that's kind of big words, but um, the covenant sanctions I think he's referring to is in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Now that corresponds to the epilogue, which is the imminence of Christ's coming attested by the faithful witness. And he has words somewhat similar to this at the very end. Those are the bookends for the book. Then, the second part of the book, part B here, is the vision of the imperfect church in the world promised salvation for perseverance. This covers the letters to the seven churches. That corresponds with B prime, down here at the bottom, in Revelation 21, the vision of the perfect church in glory having received the promise of salvation. It's a beautiful structure the way John has put this together. Then the third part is the seven seals that already in the not yet judgments on the world. Corresponding to C quote, the world's final judgment portrayed from various perspectives. And then we're getting closer to the center, the seven trumpets, judgments on the ungodly world and the great city, corresponding to the seven bowls, judgments on the world and the great city. And in the very middle, we have the War of the Ages. Now, with a chiasm, where is the emphasis placed? The very center, yes. So, the whole thing is it's kind of like... Uh, you, certain, you, you may have seen the, those uh, Russian dolls, that one inside another, or sometimes you'll have eggs one inside another. It's kind of like that. And the very center of it is this war of the ages. That's, that's, the, that's what everything is pointing to. Now we'll see some... There, there, are, there are actually chiasms all through the book. The whole book is one big chiasm. Then there's other chiasms at other places in the book. It's just... The book is a, is a very well-structured book. Amazingly well put together. Um, some people have even counted certain words, Greek words. You, you have to go back to the Greek, of course, because John wrote it in the Greek. And they have found that even the number of occurrences of certain words will be seven times or 14 times or 21. I mean, and, key, and we're talking about key words, um, which, you know, I see that and I think, that's amazing. <laughs> that what, a, what an amazingly well-crafted book. But, but it really is that. It's not something that was just kind of dashed off in, in a hurry. Now, I understand the Holy Spirit was guiding John to write this. Uh, but I also understand that in every book in the Bible, you see the character of the person who's writing it coming through. Um, so that a letter by Paul reads very different than a letter by John, even though the Holy Spirit was inspiring both of them to, to write what he wanted them to write. The Holy Spirit uses what a person has. Um, and he used what John had and John had an amazing mind here. <laughs> um, so now we look at the first section is called Jesus among 
uh, the seven churches. I'll read verses 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Who's that person? That's Jesus, Jesus, yes. What do the seven golden lampstands represent? Seven churches, churches, yes. And this... um, In the next chapter, we start the letters of the seven churches. And the the letters are, are the only part in the book that are not in a vision form. Um, and they, they really help us understand what the whole book is about, as we'll see in, in just a moment. But first of all, the seven golden lampstands, the number seven, what does that tell you? Well, that you could have a chiasm here. Well you, well, you can actually have a chiasm with any number. It doesn't have to be an odd number. It could be even... Yeah, it's not so that you get that center. Yeah, you do get a center. If you have an odd number, you get a center. And we will do a chiasm on it, John, so you hang in there. But there's some other reasons for the seven. Yeah. Seven usually denotes completeness. Yes, it denotes completeness. The very first seven in the Bible is is in Genesis chapter 2 where God rested on the seventh day. And, and you have a lot of sevens in the Old Testament. And in the book of Revelation, we have a lot of sevens as well. <laughs> a whole lot of them. You know, the seven seals and the seven bowls and, and the seven trumpets. Well, here we have the seven lampstands. And each lampstand represents one of these seven churches of Asia. And the, but, it represents, but the seven means completeness. And so the, these, these seven churches really represent the entire church. Um, is the, the, this is a letter to God's people for all ages. And, and what we see in these seven churches are what we're going to see in churches down through, down through time. Uh, churches today have the same bad points and good points, just as you find in, in, these, uh, in these letters here. So lampstands, seven lampstands, does that ring any kind of a bell from the Old Testament? The tabernacle had a seven-branch lampstand. Yes. <laughs> now, and then the temple, of course, had it had the lampstand. It had seven-branch lampstands, but I think it had it had more than just one of them because it was a huge room. But seven branch. So these seven lampstands are designed to point us right back to the tabernacle with the seven-branch lampstand. So that's again telling us that we, as part of the Lord's church today are part of the spiritual tabernacle, the spiritual temple. And that's a theme in the book of Revelation, in fact. Alright, so then we go to the letters to the seven churches. And as uh, John suggested, we'll have a chiasm here (laughs) for uh, for these seven. The bookends are churches that are failing. Uh, Ephesus is failing because they left their first love. Laodicea is failing because they're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. What did the Lord say He wished? Yeah, (laughs) He was willing to accept cold even better than lukewarm. (laughs) The advantage of cold is at least someone knows they need help. Lukewarm, they don't understand. You know, they think they're fine. 
Then the two best churches in the whole list are not where you would expect. You would expect the very center to be the best, you know, because that's the focus. No. The two best ones are are B and B prime. B Smyrna spiritually rich. Let me just read from that one. Actually, I, I should have read about F. Let's read. Let's go back to chapter two, verse uh, four. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lamps and out of its place, unless you repent. When we just hear left your their first love, you know that sounds like well, they need to tweak it a little bit. But then when he says, "I'm going to remove your lampstand," what does it mean if he removes their lampstand? They 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 don't represent Jesus. That's right. They don't represent Jesus anymore. They're not the the, the oil in the lamps represented the Holy Spirit. Our job as a, a church today is to shine the light revealed by the Holy Spirit on the community around us. And if we leave our first love, God's Bible just take our lamps and away. You're just not... Uh, you're not at all doing the function of a church. A church that doesn't shine a light is not a church at all. So now we're going to go to Smyrna, the second church. Um, in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And he has not a single negative thing to say about this church. Um, And the churches that he has the worst thing to say about were the churches that seemed to themselves to be doing the best. they weren't suffering persecution materially. They, they were well off. Spiritually, they were lukewarm or, or left their first love or, or even dead, as he says to one of these. But here you have this, this church that is going through tribulation. They are poor. Anyone remember one of the letters that Paul mentioned that some people, out of the abundance of their poverty, they were very generous? What? Who were those? They were the Macedonians, yes. Yeah, they and Macedonia suffered severe persecution, and Paul got run out of two churches in a row there, and actually had to leave the whole area just to get things to settle down a little bit. Um, but here you have Smyrna. This is over in um, what country would these three, these seven churches be in today? Turkey. They'd be in Turkey. Yes, this is Western Turkey. In fact, Ephesus was the the church Paul spent probably the most time uh, in all of his journeys preaching there. But this is most likely many years later, and and they have they've fallen from what they had once been. Um, Smyrna here, there's no mention he's ever been to Smyrna, but um, they they were poor people, but they were faithful and they were suffering and and. The Lord has nothing bad to say about them at all. Then with Pergamum, there's kind of a mixture. Um, He says in verse 3, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast My name and did not deny My faith even in the days of Antipas, My my witness, My faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I mean, that's not, you know, they've done some good things. But, 
I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. So it's kind of a it's it's not all good, not all bad. And so he wants them to straighten up with that. Um, then we come to the middle one, and that's where the focus is with this um, with this chiasm here, Thyatira. Um, and he, and he starts out. It sounds good when he starts out in verse nineteen. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. <clears throat> the things she was tempting them to do, encouraging them to do by her teaching are the very things that would remove the persecution from the church. Um, any church that practices fornication, immorality, and eats things sacrificed to idols is unlikely to get any opposition from the, the society they were in back then. It was, this was just simply a compromise with the world. And this is the major theme in the book of Revelation. The, the theme of God, the Lord wants people who will serve Him without compromise. A, a number of times later on in the book of Revelation, it talks about the people that are judged. And it lists a bunch of sins, immorality being one of them, idolatry being another one. And a third one, of course there's more than three, but a third one being a strange one, cowardly, cowardly people are punished. But that's what's, what it's about. For, for a Christian to practice those things, he's doing it because of cowardice. He doesn't want to be persecuted. I'll talk a little bit more later in this lesson about this matter of, of the persecution. Um, all right, then the, the rest of these churches are kind of the mirror image. Um, of, of what we've covered. Um, I do want to look at... Um, well, let's go down to the Laodicea in verse 15. Um, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, even though B and B prime are not at the center of this chiasm, they are what the Lord wants. But the one that's at the center of the chiasm is the reason for the book. That you have Christians who are caving in under the pressure of this worldly empire that is, is persecuting them. And the Lord has given them these visions to try to stir them up to faithfulness and courage. All right, any questions before I... Yeah, John. In addition, the compromise is also actively misrepresenting Jesus. The dead church is not representing Jesus at all, but the one that's compromised is misrepresenting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and in fact, that, that yeah, I think you're right. I think that does the, the greater damage. Um, I would a whole lot rather have someone, if someone's a Christian and not going to be faithful, I'd a whole lot rather they just quit being a Christian and don't tell anybody they are a Christian than to have someone get up and, and publicly teach, oh, 
It doesn't matter if we commit fornication. It doesn't matter if we we eat things sacrificed to idols. You know, the, it, this is this is not what Christianity is about. And there are plenty of people today that are doing that, claiming to be teaching in the name of Jesus. And, and um, yeah, they're right smack in the middle of, of the problem that the Book of Revelation is all about. Yeah, John. Especially as we know that Moses lost his opportunity to go into the Promised Land because God was angry with him. He misrepresented God's mercy and he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he did not hold up God as holy to the people. Yeah. Now that finishes the. Um, kind of the non-vision part of the book. But again, the themes that are laid down in, in these seven letters are themes that continually are referred to later on in the book. Um, I, some people have the idea, well, you know, let's study the seven letters, but the rest of the book is, is so weird, you know, so different. It's all on the same subject. It's just addressing it in, in a... Um, a different manner, <laughs> very different. All right, so that takes us up to the famous throne scene in chapters four and five. Um, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things." And so then there he is. He sees a throne with, of course, God on the throne. And, uh, and there's a rainbow colored, emerald colored around him. And there's 24 thrones around that, 24 elders. And um, it's dramatic in verse 5 out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So that's again telling, helping us understand what the seven lampstands were in, um, in chapter 1. These are seven lamps. The lampstands are stands for lamps. So the lamp, of course, is the lamp of the Holy Spirit. Um, and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature were like a lion and so on and so forth. Where in the Old Testament do we have things that remind us of this. Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2 and, and occasionally after that in Ezekiel. That, um, especially with these creatures that have the four faces. Um, and th- these are four creatures with different faces. But very similar. That's one. Can someone find, find another one? Linda? The vision in Daniel chapter 7 is another one very similar. And in fact, in chapters 4 and 5, um, John uses language from both Ezekiel 1 and 2 and from Daniel 7. The, the Ezekiel 1 and 2 is mostly in chapter 4. But the Daniel 7 covers both chapters 4 and 5. And I've got a chart here. I won't, I'm not going to go through the chart in detail. Um, but it shows how there's a parallel between Phrases in Daniel and phrases in Revelation 4 and 5. And for, a, for the most part, they follow in sequence. The, the, if you follow the references, Daniel 7.9, Revelation 4.1, 7.9a, Revelation 4.2a, 7.9b, 4.2b, and, and he, then he goes to 7.9c and 4.3a. He, 
he's kind of sequentially following through the book, uh, the, the chapter, Daniel chapter 7. At the bottom, he mentions also, both visions also contain the image of a sea. He didn't put that in the order there because I think it's, it comes out, actually out of order. But all the way through, even into chapter 5, you have this parallelism. Not once does he ever mention Daniel. Not, much, not once does he ever say, as it is written. <laughs> but he intends you to, to know your Bible well enough to understand that this is an interpretation of Daniel 7. Now, what's in Daniel 7? Linda? Yes. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, you have four beasts coming up out of the sea. And they represent world empires. The first one being the Babylonian. The last one taking us all the way to the Roman Empire. And then, at that point, when that, when that last beast gets so horrible and just beating up on the saints and all that, there's thrones set and there's a judgment scene. And, and the Ancient of Days is sitting on the throne and the Son of Man, one like unto a Son of Man, comes up to Him. And the books are opened. Well, that, that was written by Daniel as a comfort to the people of God that although... Yes, the world empires are in opposition to, to God's people and they beat up on them. God is a judge. He is in control. Nothing, nothing is happening apart from Him. And the time is going to come for them to be judged. Well, the time came for them to be judged. Jesus came. He was the Son of Man. He came in the days of the Roman Empire. And that brings up one of the major questions that the book of, of Revelation is designed to meet. And that is, and these seven churches would no doubt be asking the Lord, Lord, You're the Son of Man. You came up to the Ancient of Days. You won the victory. How come we, Your people, are, are suffering so much now? What are, what are we missing here? And so, and John is answering that question without using any of those words, but anyone that is thoughtful and knows the Bible will, will see what he's doing. He's showing, and this is very similar to how Jesus answered. You remember when John the Baptist was trying to figure out, hey, are you really the one? Jesus didn't say yes, he didn't say no, he just said, tell John what you saw. And so here, John says, I'll tell you what I saw. <laughs> and what he saw was Daniel chapter 7 being reenacted. It really is fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of Man. But you have this puzzle. Why, why are, are people suffering? And the answer that we see over and over in the book of Revelation is that we have it now, but we don't have it yet. And this is like a lot of things in the life of the Christian. We have the down payment. Every one of us has the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But that's only a down payment. And Paul puts it that way. He talks about the earnest. We have the earnest of the Spirit. Oh, every one of us has eternal life right now. But there's a much greater measure of eternal life coming. And so we have Jesus having fulfilled this, and yet the fulfillment is not complete. But the book of Revelation is going to take us to that final completion of it. So in chapter 5, we find 
Um, there's this book that has seals. How many seals? Seven. Yeah, that's John's favorite number in the book, of course. Um, and so nobody can open it up and no, no one can read it. And in, in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And these seven seals are then going to reveal the future. Um, we've seen the throne scene in Daniel chapter 7 and here in Revelation 4 and 5. And out of that, the, book, the books that were opened in Daniel 7 become this scroll of seven seals in Revelation 5. Out of that, we're going to learn what the future is. And so, we go into the seven seals, which this is as far as we'll go this morning. Next week, we'll finish the book. Um, chapter, we're going through chapter 7, actually. Um, that when he broke the first seal, what did John see? A white horse, yeah, with a bow, bow and arrow. Um, and he went out conquering to conquer. And then there's another horse, a uh, red horse, killing people. And the third horse, a black horse, scarcity, people starving to death. Uh, then there's a fourth horse, pale green, and uh, it's death. It represents death. Death in Hades was with him. Four horses. Where in the Old Testament do we have four horses of different colors? Uh, Zechariah, yeah. Zechariah, yeah. The, the two books are so similar it's hard to keep them straight. But <laughs> Zechariah. And interesting enough, Revelation chapter 6 corresponds to Zechariah chapter 6. <laughs> yeah, the chapter headings weren't, weren't even written written at the time that the book of Revelation was done. But I still think it's interesting. <laughs> so, you have these four horses which are going to cause grief to the world. This is going to be hard on God's people too. And that leads us, in fact, to the fifth seal. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is a major theme in the book of Revelation, not different from the ones we've already talked about. Why are we suffering? Lord, you've, you've won the victory. Why are you allowing this to happen to us who are your people? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told, that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So it's not over. There's going to be many more who will suffer likewise. And throughout history, the people of God who have been suffering the most severe persecutions have been the ones who have paid the most attention to the book of Revelation. With good reason. It's written for them. And and in times of of relative peace and prosperity, Revelation is not covered very much. Hey, what what do we need with the book about all these terrible things happening? We're not having these things happen to us. You know, life is good. Um, so, and unfortunately, sometimes people have interpreted the book without without understanding that that's the very question that's intended to answer. 
Why are, pe- are God's people still suffering when the Lord has won the victory? And the book is showing that, in fact, the Lord is using all these terrible things happening in the world as judgments on the people who are persecuting His people. And the Lord is taking care of His people. And, and we'll see that in... Um, well, the, the sixth seal starts in verse 12, but it ends um, with these people crying out, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That question, who is able to stand, causes John in his vision to, to pause for a whole chapter. Well, there's seven seals. We've only done six of them. But he has to pause and answer the question, who is able to stand? As then chapter 7 answers that question. And then in chapter 8, which we won't get to cover this morning because we only read through chapter 7, um, we'll get back to the final seal. But let me just mention, I believe every one of these sequences of sevens cover the same period of history. They cover from the time that John wrote until the final judgment. The seventh is always the final judgment. The seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, all of them, all the sevens are always the final judgment. So we're living in the period of the sevens. Later on, he'll, he'll give us a thousand, a thousand years. We're also living in that period. Because that period also ends with the final judgment. So the, the book of Revelation is not sequentially covering history. It's not like, well, you know, chapter 4 probably covers you know, the first hundred years and chapter 5 the next hundred and so on and so forth. It, it continually repeats the entire future as far as the eye can see, history. Not telling us things like, you know, if you read your newspaper, you can figure out where you are in the book of Revelation. That's not the point. That's not at all the point of the book of Revelation. The point of the book is to encourage God's suffering people with the, with the faith that God is in control and God is not allowing anything to happen that will harm His people. And so now let's look at chapter 7 and then we'll be finished for the morning. Um, in verse 3, this angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until... What? Yes, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So the question was, who's able to stand? The answer is, the people that have been sealed. <clears throat> this comes from the Old Testament. Where does this come from? From Ezekiel. Yes, Ezekiel chapter 9. When God was getting ready to destroy the city of Jerusalem, He shows in a vision to Ezekiel that first of all, He sent a guy with an ink, a bowl of ink and a pen to mark all the people that were faithful to God so they wouldn't get hurt. Same thing coming up here in the book of Revelation. And of course, John expects us to, to remember that and, and, and relate to that because it, it's a deliberate connection. So he goes through and he counts all the people he's sealing. And, and finally, when it's all over, um, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. We want to be in that number. And that's the point of the book of Revelation. To make sure that God's people will do everything in their power 
to be a part of that great number. Any last thoughts? All right, next week we'll finish. Next week we'll finish the whole Bible.